The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and they that worship thereon. That statement of Psalm 24 verse 1 perhaps challenges each of us this morning with a privilege and the blessedness that's ours to assemble, recognizing that even in that song that we just sang, our Father owns it all. This world is not our home, we're just a passing through. All of those passages, all of those ideas and concepts challenge us that as we live here on this earth, it is a time of making ready, a time of preparation, and a time of sober reflection on really where our priorities ought to be. It is good that we've each been able to assemble this morning, our membership, our visitors alike. We genuinely trust and hope that each of us can be strengthened and encouraged by being able to be here and by able to take from the services today things that will assist us and help us in strengthfulness for, for the matter of God. As you might have noted in the bulletin, the title of the lesson today is Jesus the King. And Brother Trail just read for us from the 19th chapter of the Revelation. The particular phrase that's listed there will be a critical element in the lesson as it's developed for us this morning. I would invite us to give some thought to these introductory comments and statements. Jesus the King. In particular, isn't it a remarkable truth that the central figure, the central person in all the Bible is none other than Jesus the Christ. It is He to whom the Old Testament looked forward. It is He to whom the New Testament looks back and is built upon the reality of Him, what He accomplished, the greatness of what took place at the scene of the cross, the church that He established, the ultimate nature, the fact He will be the final and ultimate judge of all. John chapter 5 verse 22. All of that helps us see that He is the great prophet of God. He is the remarkable high priest of God's present official means of approach to Him. He is the great King of God's kingdom. One would be at a loss to describe just how great the Christ is. All that He made possible and all that today you and I rely upon Him for. Today we will simply strive to look at only one element of all that listing... What could be said about His kingship, the nature of He as the King over God's kingdom? What does that mean to you and me today? There are many in our world who seem to labor under an impression very different about than that which the Bible proclaims concerning that kingship. In fact, there are some, amazingly enough, who are in such disagreement to it that they are not even convinced that He currently reigns as King. That's almost unthinkable in light of the New Testament. But yet, as you and I address it today, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? I'd submit that it means a number of things, not the least of which are these which we shall discuss this morning. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, as the Bible describes the roles of the Christ, perhaps as we begin our study, let's look at 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 5. It says there, speaking of Christ, there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, he serves then not only as king, but what a majestic king he is. He is able to be your mediator and mine. All of that challenges us in light of what really then is this one Jesus as king. Here's an introductory set of thoughts that I hope will help each of us on our way toward more thoroughly understanding the role of Jesus as our king. First of all, who is a king? What is a king? A king is one who rules over a particular territory. 
a specific dominion, a specific location in which He is absolute authority. That notion of absolute authority is one to which we must give careful thought. That means there's none higher than He. It means there is no person, no individual, no body of jurisdiction that serves as superior or preeminent above Him. This one who is recognized as king maybe challenges us to think about the territories on earth in which there is a king. We've known for quite some time Great Britain still has a king, a queen if you please. We notice there are other territories and municipalities upon earth. Monaco still has a king. But all the while, might we ask, what is the relationship of the citizens of that place to their king? The king is supposed to be the highest authority. He is supposed to be the one who looks out for their interests and who legislates matters for their benefit. He is supposed to be the one who is concerned about their welfare and to make sure that things are as well as possible with them. I wonder about our king. Does he look out for your interests and mine? Is he one who has a concerted interest in ensuring that with you and me, things in the final analysis are as well as they can be? In light of all of that, let's look at some of these verses. The Bible speaks on so many occasions, even in prophecy, about the nature of the king. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, In the days of the long ago, we remember that God through Jeremiah said that there is the great righteous one, and my king shall reign after the manner of David. This Old Testament prophecy speaks then about the nature of a prophecy, about the nature of one reigning in the footsteps of David. As you give thought to Isaiah 9, verse 7, it's also affirmed that this one would rule in greatness, in preeminence, and in the very matter of God's wish and desire. All of that challenges us, it seems to me, in light of this. There would be many kings that would reign in the line of David. David, you remember, was only the second king of the United Kingdom of Israel. After him would be dozens of others, everyone from Solomon all the way to Zedekiah. Which one of them fulfilled that prophecy? The answer is not a single one of them. Let's look even further. God in the Old Testament spoke about a covenant, one that surely would rest greater and more mightily and more highly than the law of Moses' covenant. This covenant would in fact have a king as the one reigning through it, for it, and over it. As prophecies about that king are uttered in passages like Psalm 132, 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 89, we read that God was firmly guaranteeing the reality of His covenant and a king would be a principal feature in it. Is it any wonder, my friends, that those Old Testament Jews looked forward to a day when in their mind a physical kingdom would exist and the greatest king ever known would reign over it? A king greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Saul, or any of those other Old Testament kings. As they looked forward to a king like that, when the Christ burst on the scene, there were some in John seven fifteen who said, He's the king. There were some who were ready at that moment to put the crown on Him and acclaim Him as king over God's kingdom, the one prophesied in the Old Testament. However, Jesus didn't want that. That wasn't God's plan. 
I didn't come to rule in a kingship like that. No wonder we need to look more carefully then. He did come to be a king, but it's not the king that folks were expecting. It's not the king they were looking for. Let's look even further. As Jesus was foretold then to be that king, maybe we should look to Luke chapter 1. I'd invite you to read with me verses 31 to 33 of Luke chapter 1 and listen to what Gabriel the angel declared just prior to the Lord's birth. On that occasion, this angel, as he spoke to Mary, revealed some things to her that truly would set the course for not only her character as mother, but also the nature of what would be the matter of the Christ. Verses 31 to 33 of Luke, the opening chapter. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. It goes without saying that where there is a kingdom, there surely is a king. And yet on this occasion, Gabriel made the absolute statement to Mary that this one who in fact shall be born of thee shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. Of His kingdom there shall be no end. He is in fact coming to reign on the throne of David. Those Old Testament prophecies that we had briefly noted a moment ago from texts such as 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 23, and a number of others... They all would find their fulfillment, reach the crescendo of preeminence in the matter of the reigning of Christ on the throne of David. As Mary was addressed with all these matters, what might you and I continue to say about the reign of Jesus as King? We are now 2,000 years after the utterances of those words. What difference does it make today if He reigns over the kingdom or not? What impact does it have on your life and mine to say that Jesus is the King? As we give some thought to those, there are several matters that would be worthy of our address. We shall not have the time to look at all of them in the allotted time this morning, but might we begin with the following set of ideas at the least. That angel Gabriel said to Mary, "'His kingdom shall know no end.'" Once established, the greatness of this kingdom would in fact flourish until the very end of time. The fact is, that kingdom over which the Christ now reigns, the kingdom over which He is the current King, it exists now. There is one of the points of division, a line of demarcation, if you will, when there are some in our world today who actually think that He does not currently reign as King. Jesus, let's notice a few of the passages in which He made reference to the kingdom. In Matthew 4 verse 17, Jesus uttered these words, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He there made reference to the kingdom and He said, It is at hand. Indicative of the truth that at that moment it wasn't yet in existence. Two chapters later, in Matthew chapter 6 verse 10, Jesus on that occasion said, As He taught His disciples to pray, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That little phrase, thy kingdom come, points out the truth that on that occasion the kingdom wasn't yet in its establishment. It wasn't yet in its existence. 
in Matthew 16, 18. Our Lord, in that coast of Caesarea Philippi, when He addressed those who were His apostles, those who were His followers, He said to them, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? After they had asserted some Jeremiah, some Elijah, some John the Baptist, or one of the prophets, it was Jesus who then said, But whom say ye that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the verses that followed, among the things which Jesus said was this, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter thus was told these words. I'll build my church, but I'll give to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom. Now surely the Lord wasn't going to build one thing and give Peter the keys to something else. Peter was given the keys of that great entity in which he would have the privilege and the prerogative to announce the term of entrance into it. And wasn't it on Pentecost when it was Peter who said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. As Peter uttered those words, might we never forget then that the kingdom met its establishment. Maybe one other passage as it leads us to that reality. We see in Mark 9 verse number 1, Jesus, in the very hearing of some who were listening to Him preach on that occasion, He said, There be some of you standing here which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Though the kingdom wasn't yet in existence in Mark 9.1, it was going to be in the lifetime of those who heard Jesus preach. The reality and fullness of that brings us to appreciate then the day of Pentecost, the greatness of that kingdom came into its being. And might we notice again, Gabriel had said, of that kingdom there shall be no end. That kingdom is still thriving. It's still flourishing. It's still alive and well. It, it exists today. Those who are under the impression that they are waiting for some yet time in the future when Jesus supposedly is going to come back, set up a throne in Jerusalem, reign for a thousand years from it, and that that is the kingdom. They have missed virtually the entire point of the New Testament. That is not going to be the kingdom. And in fact, the New Testament doesn't even teach that that will take place. It is not the fact the Lord ever, as far as we can tell, will set foot again on this earth. He will come back in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He's going to give the clarion call and the dead in Christ shall rise first, verse 16 of that same chapter. Inasmuch as then we shall rise to meet Him in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words, verses 17 and 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. What a grand occasion that's going to be. As we give thought to those matters, doesn't it challenge us then? This kingdom now exists. And it has a tremendous impact on the nature of this world. It's true that it may not mean much to you and me today that Monaco is a principality known as a kingdom. I freely confess that has almost no bearing on you and me today. But the fact that the church is a kingdom does have a bearing on you and me. In fact, if we live our lives unrecognizing of that fact, ignorant of that truth... We will have to meet God in judgment and answer for our ignorance and failure of that point. 
for we have a king. Question. To those king to those places on earth that have a king, does it matter if they respect their king or not? In Monaco, if one doesn't respect the king of that territory, and you live your life in defiance of the declarations, laws, and statutes that that king has put in place, are you allowed to live defiantly to it, or are you arrested? Are you called in question before the courts of the land? Are you put in position to answer for your lack of duty toward what the king has said? We all know it's the latter. I wonder if we should then give thought, there is a king, my friend. Jesus the Christ is king. He reigns absolutely over His kingdom. And if any person thus turns an eye of rebellion toward that king openly rebelling against what he has said, ignoring the things he has taught, there will be answer to pay. One will have to give an answer for that nature of duty. Perhaps that leads us to a second point in the lesson this morning. Not only does that kingdom exist today, but I might ask us to notice, it was back on the previous slide, there near the bottom, our Lord reigns with absolute authority in His kingdom. That again is not a shocking thing relative to a king, is it? A king usually doesn't share authority. He usually doesn't dispense or delegate that which rightfully and preeminently belongs to him. Look at these verses with me. With regard to his kingdom, which we noted earlier to be the church, Jesus is the absolute head, isn't he? He is the king over that kingdom. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, the inspired apostle had these words to say. He said, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Revisiting the opening part of verse number 22, he said, Hath put all things under his feet. How many things then have not been placed beneath the authority and jurisdiction of the Son of God? What about the nature of sin, the character of death? When the Lord said all, did He mean all? He surely did, didn't He? All things have been put in subjection beneath Him. As you notice in the next verse, then it went on to say, The fullness of Him that filleth all in all, the church is that kingdom. And Jesus reigns with absolute splendor and absolute majesty over it. In Colossians 1 verse 18, he is the head of the body, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Who then has that preeminence? Is it any man, any group of men, any conference of men? The text was very specific, wasn't it? It said, He might have the preeminence. Singular, first-person pronoun, He might have the preeminence. Today, thus, it is the case, isn't it, that when individuals or men choose to rebel against His authority, enacting legislation and laws for the body that He has not decreed, they act in open violation of His will. Because of all those matters, doesn't it lead us to that final statement, which was a part of what was read in our reading this morning? In 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 19.16, in Revelation 17, 14, in all those instances, it is He that's called King of kings and Lord of lords. 
There might be many places on earth that have a territorial king, but He is King of kings. He is the King that reigns in splendor, in majesty, in absolute authority over all matters of His kingdom. And no man has right to question, answer, or rebel against Him and do so. Expect it that the King will recognize it. Because of all of that, these conclusions then seem directly to follow. Near the top of that slide, what a mistake it is for us to lift ourselves up and to think that we may reign as a co-regent to Him. Throughout the centuries, several have tried that. There is even a man of sin spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2 who occupies that position. But yet, might we notice that God has already judged that one and that He will be found to be exactly what the Lord all along declared Him to be. Today, isn't it then something to seriously consider when we notice that any number of religions strive to lift up one and to reign that person along with Christ? What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Jesus, in fact, is spoken of as the one with all preeminence. What took place in the book of 3 John? When there was a gentleman named Diotrephes who wished to have the preeminence among the men. Did not John say, I will come and deal with him? Because that which he desired, having that preeminence among men, was something that was condemned by the character of the God of heaven. Today, how loving it is to appreciate the order and directive of elders who serve beneath the authority of the Christ. They don't legislate on their own accord. But wasn't it true that Paul told Titus that he would set in order the things they're wanting and in verse 9 of Titus 1, that they would rule with soundness of what the Lord had declared. Today, how thankful we can be for elders who wish to reign like that, who wish to in fact do only what a thus saith the Lord has led them to conclude and what they would wish to put in place because of that. Elders who serve beneath the dignity and jurisdiction of the God of heaven through the Christ. So far as we have looked at these two points, perhaps a third one. The Old Testament reign of David. It is something significant to notice that Jesus was said to reign on David's throne. That's interesting, isn't it? As you and I revisit the Old Testament and at least give some passing thought to the reign of David, consider it with me in the following light. The Old Testament, first of all, it was not such that it was immediately to be the case that God would have a king to reign over His people. Remember, first there was Moses and there was Joshua. There was the period of the judges. Only in 1 Samuel 8 did the people request a king. Only in 1 Samuel 8 did they want a king and even then it was not for a good cause. They in fact said that we may be like the nations round about us. Their wish, you see, was to be like everybody else, and that's why they wanted a king. That was not a particularly good reason. And in fact, God said, they have rejected me, and they have wanted a king. God looked upon it as an affront to His leadership. He looked upon it as an absolute transgression of what they ought to have wished for. No wonder later, in Hosea 13, 11, He says, I gave them a king in my anger. I took him away in my wrath. 
You see, it was never the will of God in the Old Testament that they have an earthly king like that. But yet God answered their wish. He gave them the request. All along, though, God rebuked the kings. On so many occasions, they chose to act in a way of sinfulness. And God would send His prophet to rebuke them. Wasn't it true that Nathan rebuked David, 2 Samuel 12? Wasn't it true Gad rebuked him as well, 2 Samuel 23 and 24? Wasn't it true also that Amos rebuked several kings in the book of Amos? All the while today, we have a better arrangement than that. Our king is not subject to the whims and fancies of human weakness. Our king isn't subject to the difficulties and sins of the character of the human frame. Our King is Jesus. He's perfect. No sin found in Him at all, Hebrews 4.15. So He serves in a far higher way even than David did. But it is true, it is said that He reigns on David's throne. When David became the king of ancient Israel, it was he who, remember, was a man after God's own heart at that time in his life. It was he who was lifted so high above the days of Saul when Saul was king, Saul made many mistakes because he lifted up himself. Remember, he failed to do exactly what God said to destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. It was Saul who had the nerve to offer sacrifice when he was not authorized to do it. He was presumptuous. Jesus, though, now reigns on David's throne because David was a man of humility. At that time in his life, he was a man who reigned in the proper way. Today, is the Lord concerned about the members in His kingdom? Does He care about you and me? Or does He only care about Himself? That answer is self-evident, isn't it? We each would in fact find it happy to serve in a kingdom where the king looked out for my interests. When the king was genuinely, sincerely, and with great consideration concerned about me and you. But that's the very kind of king we have. He doesn't want us to end up in a devil's hell. He doesn't want us to end up living a life of misery and sin here. He doesn't want us to live a life that calls upon us the judgment of God at that great final day. He wants us to live in a way in which he's concerned no wonder in love He gave us Scripture after Scripture, reminding us of the greatness of thoughts like these. In Hebrews 7, verses 25 and 26, Wherefore He is also also to save them to the othermost who come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. The next verse speaks about the high priesthood of Christ. For such an high priest becometh us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's our high priest. He is the one that you and I serve. Did you notice his description with me? He's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Our Christ, you see, is undefiled. No guile found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.24 we also can see that in the character of that life, He is described like this. For such an high priest becometh us, who though He knew the character of our sins, tempted at all points in sin like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15. 
All of that challenges us that we serve a king far better and higher than David. But it is a king likened unto the throne of David himself. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, our Savior came through the physical lineage and loins of David. The genealogies in both Matthew and Luke trace him back to that point. And later in 2 Timothy 2.8, he is again stated to be of that seed. For that reason, he fulfills all those prophecies that Gabriel uttered to Mary. It is an interesting thing in light of that to conclude that thought with this fourth point. What about the reign of Jesus? David's throne, you might remember, lasted for a good while while David reigned on it. But David finally died. There had to be a successor chosen. What about the reign of the Christ? Will there come a time that His reign will end in the sense that He will die and another will take His place? Today, that's still one of the most troubling matters in those areas that have a king. What happens when the king dies? Will the person that takes over reign goodly? Will that person reign respectably? Or will that person be a spoiled brat who ruins the economy, ruins the kingdom? No wonder we should give thought to this. We serve a king who will not abdicate, and he will not be overthrown. Jesus' reign will last until the very end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul made that very statement, he addressed to the Corinthian brethren the following points. I'd invite you to read with me, beginning in verse number 23 of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But every man after his order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet." The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Our king is going to reign absolutely, fully, and completely until the very last enemy is destroyed. And the last enemy, he said, is not going to be a president on earth. It's not going to be some territorial magistrate. The last enemy is going to be death. The Lord is going to reign in absoluteness until there is no more death. That, my friend, must be until the end of time. He is going to reign over His kingdom until that point, and only then will He hand the kingdom over to the Father. He reigns absolutely now, and then He will present as a cherished treasure, as a cherished jewel, that kingdom over to His Father. Don't you want to be reckoned amongst that group? Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? He's going to turn it over to the Father, and on that occasion... He shall have reigned until the very end. There are a number of verses even besides that one that point out that thought. But it is such a compelling one, isn't it? That He will reign until the very end. We never have to worry about a king that's going to turn the kingdom over to a ruthless group who don't know how to manage it. Daniel had said in Daniel 2.44 that of His kingdom there shall be no end. The church is going to remain intact. It will remain in character, integrity, and that for which the Lord wished it to be. All of that takes us to the fifth and last point of the lesson this morning. We've talked about Jesus as our King. 
But perhaps in fairness, as we close the lesson, we should notice that he simultaneously serves also as our high priest. How often in the Bible do we encounter that set of events? When the same person served as both a king and a priest, the times are very few, aren't they? In fact, we encounter Melchizedek as the premier example. He was king of Salem, but he was also priest of God, Genesis 14, 18. Here was the one who would serve then as an example of what the Christ would be. For just as surely as Melchizedek served both roles, so too will the Christ. Zechariah 6 verse 12 in fact foretold it, that at the same time he would serve both as priest and as king. Today, you see, those kings that rule over various countries or places on the earth, they often have only physical things of interest. They want to make sure the economy is good. They want to make sure exports and imports are proper. They often have little, if any, interest in spiritual matters. We serve a king who not only wants things well, but his greatest interest is for your spiritual concern. You see, he serves not only as a king, but as a priest. He is able to carry your concerns to the Heavenly Father, but you need to allow him to do it. He won't carry them there despite your wishes. If you need to come to him today, perhaps as one who is an alien sinner, one who has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, to this point you have been a rebel to his cause. Please don't continue in that way. Please think seriously and urgently the fact there is a king. And today we've learned he reigns absolutely over his kingdom. And that kingdom is the only ones that shall be saved, Ephesians 5, 23. If you're not in the kingdom, my friend, you are living in a very, very eternally dangerous situation. We've also noted in this lesson that Jesus now reigns over David's throne, that he shall reign to the end of time, and that he is also the high priest. Today, as a part of His officiation as high priest, He asks that you come before Him, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. As He asks that of you, that demand He states with great promise and reward. If you have been a member of His body, a citizen in His kingdom, but you have not been faithful, why not come back to Him today? He is willing to reinstate you to a faithful status in that kingdom. But again, He won't do it against your wishes. He needs you. He requests that you make request of Him. We're going to sing a song of encouragement in just a moment. And if we could be of help to you to pray on behalf of sins that He will forgive them, you must repent of them, of course. But upon so doing, He will forgive. And He will again put you in right status in the kingdom. Today, if you need to come before your king and confess error or perhaps to be admitted into the kingdom, why not do that today? Why not now? While together we stand and while we sing.